You are listening to the Liquid Flannel Podcast, and I am your host, Chuck, and I am a systems analyst and a soccer freak. <laughs> and joining me today is Brendan. And I'm Brendan Williams. I am a news junkie podcast addict. <laughs> and today we have a special guest. Matt Hodges. That's right. I am Matthew Hodges. I'm an attorney and a social justice advocate and an environmental organizer. There we go. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for coming on the show today, Matt. We've been wanting to have you on for a while, and we're glad we could finally make it happen. Coming in live from Arlington, Texas? Is that what you said? I am in Arlington, Texas. Excellent. Yeah. Well, welcome to the Liquid Flannel Podcast, and congratulations on being the first guest ever in the history of the podcast. In the history of podcasting. We're inventing guests. We're inventing guests. Then. Right now. That's I'm right. delighted to be here. I've been enjoying the podcast. Well, we appreciate it. I've been looking forward to getting to join you guys. We've been wondering if anyone listens, so that's great to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, f- I follow both of you on Twitter, so I always get the like the update when, when it posts. <laughs> I've been trying to up my Twitter game lately and get more uh, participatory. I- I've been kind of a, you know... Lurker. Lurker. Long time lurker. Right, lurking in there. So I'm trying to up my game and, and start tweeting more, but it's it's tough to do sometimes. I run the men's lib Twitter. The men's lib subreddit. Why don't if you're comfortable, why don't you expand a little bit about that and let us know what it is, kind of why you started Yeah, so uh Men's Lib, it's an organization that I started on Reddit, but we're hoping to branch out to other avenues. Um the idea behind it is basically that Yes, there is a place for men's issues within the social justice discussion. Pretty much all of the places that are trying to do that work right now aren't really focusing so much on men's issues as they're focusing on being anti-feminist or even just anti-women in in a lot of cases. So what we've tried to do is craft a different sort of discussion that really sticks to the concrete issues and also accepts, you know, women's issues as part of that same discussion. We take the position that it's not an adversarial thing. You know, there's no reason that the genders shouldn't be able to work together um, as they're addressing those different issues. So uh, we're not well-liked among the established, uh, like, the manosphere or meninists or whatever they want to call themselves on any given... The, the MRA. Yeah, the, the MRA community. <laughs> the Mennonites. Um, we have gotten some pretty great reception among everybody else. Yeah, it's been pretty great. We're uh we did we did a little bit of stuff for International Men's Day yesterday, trying to spotlight some other good, you know, men's issues focused groups and we also have an ongoing action project right now to try to uh identify all of the volunteer requirements for domestic violence shelters um to help Men who want to help men who are at domestic violence shelters, because uh, there's a there's a big gap in volunteerism. Like men talk about how there's not enough help for men in the domestic violence sphere, but men also aren't volunteering to help them out. So we're trying to help lower that barrier by just getting the requirements all in one place, because it can be pretty hard to track down. Yeah, that's awesome, and I think that's really cool because it kind of shows that doing stuff and. and- putting positivity into the world, you know, it doesn't really take a lot. 
it's not like you have to like upend your entire life. You could just be like, I'm going to Google some stuff and put a list together and then give it to people so they don't have to spend an hour Googling everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. And the, uh, like the interjection of positivity into the discussion was kind of the founding principle that it's all just so like the gender wars with the trademark symbol behind it is so ugly <laughs> and right. there's no reason that it needs to be like, we need to, Go back to basics and look at the actual issues, and it turns out that there's a whole lot of places where people want to collaborate on that stuff. And the rest of it is like reasonable minds can disagree about any particular policy. It doesn't mean that the other person is evil. It just means that we disagree on the best implementation or something. And I think that's even more important right now. I started this about mm -hmm. a year and a half ago, but right now we have so much division in any political issue that trying to right. like bridge yes. the gap wherever possible, I think is, uh, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's so crazy. The things that have become political issues now that you would never even think would be like red versus blue type issues like torture. Right. Is Hamilton a good play or not? Almost any issue that you drill it down to that kind of like adversarial, I win, mm -hmm. you lose versus, like, coming at it from an empathetic, like, hey, I just want to learn and understand Where you're perspective. And yeah. if these, if two people are trying to have a conversation and one person's just saying, well, I'm just trying to understand, and the other person's saying, like, I don't care about understanding at all. I'm trying to win. You know, how do you even get right. started in having a conversation? It almost seems sure. impossible. And if you try to shut me down, it's a threat to my First Amendment. You know, that's mm -hmm. that seems to always be what it is, but... Right. Yeah. You're never going to run out of movies with it's, white people. Like, wh it, like, right. <laughs> like any media <laughs> right, that you look right. at, uh, they like look books. at it it's like a zero-sum right. game, right? Because to say, oh, a black person is in a video game, I'm, I'm losing points here on team mm -hmm. whiteness, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is just so we got to catch up. The next one is ours, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. This is an assault <laughs> on, my, on my values of mm -hmm. having games only have white people in them forever. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, well, I honestly feel like there's a certain portion of the electorate that literally thought that it was Hillary's turn by virtue of it being, now it's time for it being a woman's turn. Well, and, and what's, what's interesting about that is I feel like the campaign itself felt like they could rely on people to agree with that. And that wasn't really what was motivating people to vote. You didn't see women come out in droves to vote for Hillary Clinton by virtue of her being a woman. And you didn't see people come out in droves to vote for her by virtue of literally anything. I think there was sort of an expectation on the Clinton team that you would have this big woman turnout just by virtue of her being a woman. I agree that it's totally time for us to have a woman president, but you have to make the argument for why that's a good thing. It's really like twelve angry men. Henry Fonda was good in that in that thing. I had to convince all the other jurors that right. were somewhat evil, and but he had to convince them. He literally he couldn't just sit back and say, "I'm the best option you got." Right. Everything else is Armageddon. And oh, by the way, that dude's a racist. Oh, by the way, that dude is a bigot or a misogynist. He had to listen to them, he had to empathize with them, and he had to rationalize with them in a way that they would understand. And 
if Hillary Clinton is the Henry Fonda, she definitely <laughs> did not. She she fell short. Right. No, I think I think you're totally right about that, Chuck. And I've been thinking about that a lot in the aftermath of this election. Um, you know, you see a lot of criticism of uh, identity politics, which to me is bullshit because all politics is identity politics. People are always going to vote for the politician that they most identify with, the one that speaks to their identity. Now, the fact that a white male is considered to be sort of a default identity, and so when we talk to what benefits white men, that's not identity politics versus if you're talking about an under, a marginalized group, that is identity politics. That's completely misconstruing that entire term. Along with that, is also a criticism that um, simply relying on identity politics was a failure. You know, we've gotten to a point that's sort of a, I'm not going to say post-racist, but post-impolite conversation racist, where if you're espousing a racist view, that's just wrong at this point. Except we seem to have a bunch of voters who don't seem to remember why racism is wrong. We're not making the argument. We're not continuing to convince people this is why immigration is not necessarily the biggest evil that you can think of. This is why multiculturalism is a value of the United States, and this is how it benefits you personally. There was very much a, a labeling game happening, I think, worked to the detriment of anybody who didn't want Donald Trump to be elected. You can almost go too far, though, and to try to appeal to the most irrational people, I think what she maybe should have done in retrospect was... Go for the voters that she had a shot at. Right, or, or to energize her base, right? She was... she. I, they, thought, they thought they had it in the bag, and so they said, we can just coast to victory and even appeal to people who we never thought we had a chance of appealing to and still win and completely ignore people who were just not excited about either candidate and decided to stay home. And or, by the way, third party. if this is, if post-election is Monday morning quarterbacking, this is kind of like Wednesday afternoon quarterbacking. Yeah, no, fair, fair enough. I think we're all still kind of reeling. Everyone's still casting about for some kind of an explanation. Uh, but Brendan, I, I totally agree with you. And I, one of one of the big frustrations that I've been having with, some people that I'm close friends with that I consider to be politically aligned is this distinction between can we reach out to people versus is there actually a right or a wrong position on things? And I'm not willing to take it so far as to say that appeal to everyone's emotion, like everyone's perspective is equally valid. I don't believe in that. And I think that that's that's a failure in the other direction. You can't bring a racist to the table in a pluralistic society. We still have to be able to exclude white nationalism, but we have to convince all of the other people why white nationalism isn't a strong argument, you know, why that works against our country, why that works against people as individuals. I think a lot of people come to it not from a thought through perspective, but rather they just rely on like, that's the default. The default is if I'm a white man, if I hear people talking about racism and I'm not super plugged into that as a problem in society, I just think like, well, why are we wasting time on that? Why mm -hmm. don't we do the thing that I want to do? 
which is bring back manufacturing jobs or whatever. And it's not that you are racist. Racism just isn't an issue for you. And that's fine, but exactly like you said, Matt, you have to remind them that, you know, what they're going along with to say, look, maybe if it's a trade-off here, maybe you're not racist, but you need to be reminded that what supporting racism is actually doing and actually Mm -hmm. having an impact on people even if it's just kind of a side effect or, you know, a default position that you just continue to ignore and buy. By not objecting to that part of your party platform that you don't actually co-sign. Because this election was a punch in the gut for a lot of people. And I can say that in loose terms because I'm a relatively privileged person. Disadvantaged populations are feeling it much more deeply. But I still think that for the most part, Americans are not racist, sexist, xenophobes. They just, the pitch wasn't made for why they needed to go along with something that didn't result in them co-signing that kind of sentiment. There's the pitch. If you made the pitch better, it would have been good, and maybe you would have won the election, but to really have that be a full success, you have to have a messenger who, a message like that, can make sense coming from. And uh, the progressive vision in the Democratic Party platform, uh, as much as I support a lot of things in it, you know, Hillary Clinton almost seemed like had to be dragged along to it. And so she could, you know, go out and say like, well, I don't support the TPP. That's a completely transparently, Mm -hmm. you know, pandering move. You have a candidate with so much baggage that the message is so clouded by just past transgressions and negative feelings where Donald Trump was able to come in, and even though he also had those past transgressions and negative feelings, they weren't in the avenue of government. And so for some reason, they were able to be kind of glossed over, Uh, whereas, you know, Hillary Clinton's problems were uh, with the government itself, and it it weakened her position, even though you also can make the argument like, well, she also knows so much more, and that's now becoming clear as Trump is it seems struggling at times to adapt to this new role. Like, I don't think that would have been an issue for Hillary. Well, I think that she would have taken it with a finer grain of salt if the uh, cast of Hamilton had to uh, address her or her running mate in... uh, After the uh, performance, uh, did you see that at all, Matt? Well, I did, and I was, I, you know, I thought it was kind of a cool, classy move, but, you know, it seemed very respectful to me, and then it was followed up by our president-elect um, basically throwing a shit fit on Twitter about it. Now, I, I think that part of that was redirecting people's attention to that would have gotten a lot of the media off his back on Trump some of University. these other like major, yeah, Trump University or this weird thing that happened with his hotel chain, you know, a, a bunch of foreign dignitaries were staying, you know. So, I mean, I think part of that was a a distraction move. The thing that concerns me the most about what happened with the whole Hamilton thing is that he is redirecting the conversation about political speech to much more than even during the George W. Bush administration, this was a concern that you're either with us or you're against America. And now, you know, as he's now the full embodiment of America personified. Right. 
and and now you know speaking up against those in power the people who are our employees ultimately is somehow off limits you know and it bums me out too that and this is just a stupid personal thing but that like hamilton is now considered the enemy when i love that show and i think that it is a show for all americans because it's about the founding of our country and the way the founding fathers just completely hated each other in a lot of ways and that's an important thing to know for somebody who wants to be civically engaged but you know here's the thing is that it drives me crazy because the what they actually did isn't that outrageous and they're completely you know blowing it out of proportion probably intentionally just to cause you know some sort of culture war that they think they can win because now Trump's in power. But the play is so good that Mike Pence wanted to go see it. Dick Cheney right. went and saw this play and loved it. And so... Well, Dick Cheney's just a fan of good hip-hop. Right. You know, good rhymes, <laughs> dope beats. I think even Trump, cuts. if he saw it, would like it, which I don't think he's seen it. Which I think is you should disqualify you from the presidency. Well, for sure. He clearly hasn't seen it because one of his tweets literally said, from what I've heard is very overrated. How can you how can you judge that? You haven't seen the thing. I hope that Trump listens to Hamilton and just like has a good cry and just is a changed man, you know? There that finally this controversy, they have to be like, Trump, if you're gonna tweet about it, you have to at least listen to it. And then he just listens to it and he just has like an epiphany. Oh my god. And just becomes George Washington. And he challenges Obama to a rap battle. That's going to be amazing. He the, uh, and the this only way is going to be so good. Complete it is to actually have slaves again, like George Washington, <laughs> to chase him down, and to put out a line of wooden Trump teeth. So yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I hope that this doesn't turn Hamilton. I mean, I guess it already is. People were trying to say boycott Hamilton, which is hilarious when it's sold out for like two years. Right. <laughs> Don't buy tickets to the thing you can't buy tickets for because they're so popular they're not available. It's like the, the Starbucks protest where people are going into Starbucks and then when they ask you for your name, you say, like, Trump, so that the person at Starbucks has to be like, Trump! Oh. Trump, your coffee's ready. That's apparently a Trump protest that's going on. Did you see that dude having that meltdown at a Starbucks or whatever? <laughs> oh, the guy who just starts chanting Trump, Trump, Trump after a little while. Yeah, that was pretty funny. But also, something that isn't as funny is kind of the whole idea <laughs> about the Paris Agreement. I feel like Trump is literally just, like, flipping a coin on that. It had even Bill O'Reilly scared enough to say, we should probably say that. But now countries are saying, well, if that... If they bounce out of it, we're going to put on some embargoes and maybe get right, our I mean, agriculture from Latin America. Really flipping the, flipping the script on flipping Trump. Flipping the script, flipping saying, the tables. Yeah, oh, you want to do some stuff that we don't like? Yeah, we'll put, just like you want to put trade embargoes on everybody on Mexico or whatever. Mm -hmm. We could do that too, yeah. if that's how you want to play this. It just goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, coming at it from a win versus lose perspective. It just drags everyone down <laughs> to that level. Whereas if you come at it from an aspect of universal cooperation, maybe you get taken advantage of sometimes, but the net benefit is to everyone. Well, and universal cooperation doesn't mean being a sucker either. There's nothing wrong with standing up for your own interests within a cooperative system it's but you're right it's it's the difference between standing up for your own interest and 
deciding that my interests are zero-sum with anybody else's interests. Well, and that kind of fracture, though, is kind of... I want to say partly why Democrats lost, but um, but the other thing is the votes keep coming in, and Hillary Clinton is winning by the largest amount that a losing <laughs> right. candidate has ever had. This electoral... Like over 1.5 million right, right now. Yeah, <laughs> over 1.5 million more votes... Uh, to Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, but because he won in this in the number of states to secure the electoral college, he he's still going to be the president. I just wish one time, one time Republicans would have this kind of electoral college defeat instead of Democrats, because you know they'd flip around and destroy that like immediately. <laughs> Some, yeah. Somehow the Democrats won't stoop to that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you know, when Obama was in power, they weren't up repeating. We go that. high. <laughs> the the, the the electoral college. Although there is like a bill that they're trying to pass, and they passed it in like eleven states or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still seems like a long shot to get rid of it. I'm more excited about this main ranked choice voting thing. Mm-hmm. I just hope that somehow it doesn't empower like far right wing candidates in Maine because that is a possibility. Well, it is, but the the sword on that cuts both ways, right? Because the the virtue of ranked voting is that. It encourages coalition governments, uh, but the thing about a coalition government is that you know that you're creating a coalition government, which means people are going to be much more explicitly co-signing things that they don't necessarily stand for. When you get to far-right ideology, the person who is ranking socialist, regular kind of liberal progressive person middle conservative and Nazi may look at that and be like, what kind of government are we likely to come up with? It turns out that if I vote this way, it's more likely that Nazis are going to be part of our government. And I'm not really in favor of that, you know, so they adjust their rankings a little bit. It's not a vote for a, and you don't get Nazis or vote for B that also speaks to your interests and you do get Nazis. It's a bit more of a nuanced choice than that. So I mean, I would really love to have a system kind of more like uh, Canada's system where they have kind of a multi-party coalition, you know, based government, because I think it does actually Um, encourage (laughs) it does encourage cooperation and the coalition building and and coming to compromises where the two party system, it's impossible to. I mean, the Republican side won't even compromise on anything, even on things that they supposedly agree with. You know, you got Obama trying to say, like, let's pass this stimulus spending bill for infrastructure. And Republicans are saying, like, outrageous, not even, yeah. won't even talk about it. And, you know, then Trump comes in and says, like, maybe I want yeah. to do infrastructure. And they're like, yeah, come on. Yeah. We've been wa- we've been telling mm-hmm. Obama that this Steve whole time. Bannon is making it sound like they're just inventing the term, you know. They're like, what about infrastructure? Right. But what do you think about the potential for cooperation, bipartisan compromise with Trump on infrastructure spending plan? Even if it's going to, you know, be the Trump way where you end up like with all this money going to private, you know, corporations or whatever. But the infrastructure gets done. You know, the ends justifies the means. What do you think? Well, I think there I think there are two questions there, actually. One of them is policy wonkish sort of execution question. Um, And there's another one that also speaks to this uh, this team-based politics that we've been talking about, where do we want them to even be able to get away with saying they accomplished anything? Like, they co-sign all of this hateful ideology. Should they be able to accomplish any policy goals at all? 
And that has to be counterbalanced against, like, do I want the U.S. government to continue to not do anything, which is basically what we got used to under President Obama. Not his fault, uh, in my opinion, uh, but that's certainly what Congress has been like during most of the Obama administration. So I think there are two different questions there. One of them is the, do we let the hateful ideology get to claim any kind of successes at all? The other one is... If the answer is yes, then how are those plans implemented? That's a place where reasonable people can come together and disagree. Best proposals win out. But, I mean, Trump's going to claim victory regardless. I mean, even if he doesn't sure. do it, he'll claim victory of not doing it because it was better that way in the first place. And he said but, that the whole time. The man himself will be able to, but uh, the government under Trump, the party apparatus that will have to campaign in two years and in four years on their basic policy accomplishments. You know, they they don't get away with just being on a big temper tantrum person on, on Twitter. I would love yeah. to believe you, but we have another Trump election coming up. So I don't even know what to believe anymore because I, yeah. I want to say exactly right. They're going to fail so spectacularly that there's no way they can win a second term. Mm. And I hope you're right. I, I worry yeah. that they're just going to say, well, first they might try the Bush strategy, which is start a war and then say, hey, you can't change presidents in the middle of a war. We got a war going on right here. This is serious business. Right. Um, but We're keeping you safe. <laughs> right. At the same time, I hope you're right, Matt. I, I hope that this next election will be fought on the realism of what, you know, the Trump administration was able to accomplish in its four years. Mm-hmm. But... I don't know. Where do you come down? I mean, I kind of feel like, hey, look, if we can partner on some stuff, just on the principle alone of I don't want the Democrats to turn into the obstructionist party that's willing to shut the government down, you know, just because Trump is doing whatever crazy nonsense he wants to do. I guess there's some lines where you could just say you got to draw a line in the sand and say if Trump's trying to do this, it's so nuts. We have to shut the government down. But on principle, I just think that's an abhorrent you know, thing to have to do. And I thought it was disgusting when Ted Cruz did it, and I'd think it was disgusting if Democrats tried to do it. Right. But I guess it's all about the context of what's yeah, going no, on. I don't disagree with you on that either. Um, and I think that that goes back to what we were talking about almost at the beginning of this discussion of engaging people on a, a truly individual and personal level as regards different policy proposals. I don't think that there's a a built-in failure to the approach of Democrats continuing to keep the government basically functioning and making that pitch to people. We compromised on these issues because if we hadn't, it'd be even worse. People like you would have been hurt and still throwing up as many roadblocks as possible to some of the more abhorrent potential legislation. Like it or not, he is going to be the president and the Congress is going to be Republican dominated for the next two years. That is, you know, that's a difficult choice that we have to make. And I tend to agree with you. I don't want to see my party, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a loose Democrat, but the party that I tend to align with turn into what I've disliked about the opposition. Well, it's kind of like watching the media groups when the side that they're on is out of favor or whatever, you know, they kind of become the ones that are saying, 
well, those guys are just bowing down to the president and the White House. And, and then as soon as their people are in favor, it's the same. They flip the script the same way. So, mm-hmm. but more and more people aren't even watching those news networks and things like that. <laughs> maybe, maybe the key is more and more people just abandoning the parties and being independent and saying, really, what I want you to judge me on is the content, the, the things that I believe in, the things I stand for, the people that I want to help. Not what team I'm on. Uh, I'm a free agent. I want to try to be optimistic that there may be opportunities where the Democrats can work with with Trump almost against the Republican establishment. You know, Trump to really prove that all that stuff that he came in about saying, like, I'm going to clean it up. I'm running as an outsider because only I can fix it. Both parties are corrupt. I'm hoping the Democrats can align with him on that. Some of the changes he's proposing with like lobbying, you know, Absolutely. restrictions and stuff. Five year restriction. You know, there could be there could be positives to it. I mean, but at the same time, you're allowing Trump to claim victory and to really control, you know, what's getting done. Uh, you know, yeah. and it's not going to get done in the way that Democrats necessarily want. Okay, but on the flip side, there are places where democrats could team up with not trump but instead the republican party i keep thinking about his proposed trade policies you know we get into a trade war with china we might bring some steel plants back to ohio and michigan but everything at walmart's going to double in price literally overnight it's not really a great policy for your average american and that's a place where the republican party doesn't align with his approach Big industry doesn't want to get into a trade war. Uh, they they benefit from fairly open economic borders, and the the fewer tariffs they have, the bigger their market is. So they're not going to support the kind of policies that he's talked about, where we get rid of free trade deals, and we're seeing that already in both energy and in the auto industries. An emerging theme of this conversation seems to be making deals with the devil probably just true at this point and you pick and choose which deals you're willing to make and in the meantime you keep up your own narrative and your own convincing education to other people about why we're making these choices this is why our party is actually the more responsible one this is the party that actually speaks to your interests this is why we were willing to compromise on this particular thing. This is why we weren't willing to compromise on that one. The, the thing that uh, is hopeful is that with a Trump presidency to kind of unify against, I think that will really help to drive out you know, the Democrat energy and enthusiasm coming into the midterms, which I think could you know, have a potential big impact, especially when you look at the census coming up for redistricting, oh, yeah. trying to get control of some of the states. But... This, at the state and local level, I mean, it is a disaster for the Democrats, um, and well, yeah, it, it's it, deeply concerning. I've had two big threads on that. One of them is that the Republican shutout in most uh, governor's mansions and state houses makes it much more difficult for an opposition party, be it Democrats or anybody else, to build the kind of pedigree in up-and-coming politicians. Because, right. I mean, so much of it is just name recognition and, yep. you know, glad-handing and, and stuff like that. And if you've been doing it for years, 
it's certainly much easier to get people to come out and vote for you in a local election. Right, right. No it's one's it's that, and it's it's also a you know a legislative resume, if you will, where I can point to these things that I accomplished while I was in the city council or the state legislature or something like that. If you're always in the minority, then it's going to be much harder to build that sort of a resume. You're not getting anything done. <laughs> you know, so it's actually hamstringing any other opposition party just because they don't get to participate and build that kind of pedigree. The other thread comes at it from a different direction. You know, I align less with the party platform of the Democratic Party than I do with the Green Party. But I never vote green because the greens only seem to come out when there's a presidential election. You know, I've never seen a green candidate on my board of county commission. Now, I've lived in the, you know, the Great Plains pretty much <laughs> right, my entire exactly. life. When you're out in, yeah. if you're Portland, in Eugene, Oregon or something, it's much more likely to see a green party candidate for a county commissioner. Right. Or, or even be like sitting on the city council already right. and things like that, which is, which is cool. I mean, I really would love to see a system where, where there could be more diverse voices and to help detract from this kind of good versus evil <laughs> dichotomy. When you have mm. more parties, it's much harder to devolve into that type of mm. us versus them, uh, you know, type of fervor that where you're not even listening right. to logic anymore. Mm. But at the same time, within a first past the post electoral system, it is a weakness of there's a there's a strength in conservatism, which is that they seem much more willing to band together for victory almost regardless of yeah almost regardless of particular position they were able to unify behind trump like the worst candidate by any measure right even mm -hmm. more you know he won but don't forget he was more disliked than clinton who is the most disliked person to have ever run up to that point sure um so the fact that that republicans were able to unify behind that candidate is as, as this election shows, the Democrats will not do, um, which right. in, in a way is a strength of theirs, but it causes them to lose elections. It yeah, it has to do with the basic political philosophy of the two approaches. Conservatism tends to favor a status quo or a retreat to a simpler past or something like that. That's a strong thing that unifies a group of people. Progress liberal liberalism progressivism tends to be a much bigger tent, which means it, it is pluralistic as a value, which means you you're going to see a lot of fighting on the the part of the left. And you get on Twitter right now and look at any electoral news, half of what you see is the left fighting. With itself. Right. Right. With itself. <laughs> but in a weird way, I feel like the other thing, though, is the downfall is Hillary Clinton was trying, was going out of her way near the end to try to get more of those moderate conservatives out there that had money. And at the end of the day, those people are always just going to go for the real deal. Right. So my question for you, Chuck, you have a little bit better perspective on this than Brendan and I do. 
the conventional wisdom was that the minority vote was going to show up in record numbers in this election, which they did, just not to the extent that was expected. Were not in the places that they were needed to, to win this okay, map. Yeah, fair right. enough. They and, could turn out in California and Nevada right. and New Mexico, but if not they're not North in Wisconsin Carolina. or whatever, they, right. they didn't show up in Wisconsin. They didn't show up in Florida. They didn't show up in Pennsylvania. Do you think a better strategy would have been to try to excite that base than to go yes. more more toward the to middle? To lean across the aisle, which is the that was the big criticism of Obama within the black community. It felt like Obama was doing more to reach across the aisle and say, well, everyone has has a little bit of a point, right. and including the guy that will arrest you trying to get into your own home, let's bring him to the table. No, let's not do right. that. And right. it was just conservative people that were moderate, that didn't want to make any waves, right. but it was okay if you did whatever in your own home. Right. She thought she could get them. We knew that she couldn't get them. And if you look at the states like Wisconsin and Michigan, I mean, those states went more towards Bernie. Sure. You would be less inclined to try to bring in, what's the euphemism we're using right now, the, the economically anxious white man, um, and instead double down on what actually makes the positions different? Yeah. And you look at, I mean, look at Trump. He received more of the black vote than Romney did. And Romney didn't say anything even remotely racist. He didn't have racist, you know, rental policies or sales, real estate policies. Overtly racist statements that he's made about people of color. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, he was out there pandering, hanging out in a black church, going out there saying, like, your your life is ruins. What do you have to lose? You're living in hell. What do you have to lose? (laughs) At the very least... I mean, he did speak to them. I mean, I don't think Romney really went out of his way to even try to reach out to those communities. You know well, what I mean? Right. He said, "There's a we have a net that'll handle that. You know, a safety <laughs> right. net that handles that." There's there's a difference between what helps you win the next election and what is good for like the integrity of the entire sure. party uh, sure. and the entire country. But again, that that's the problem with the Democrats is that they think about those things about like what's good for everyone and what's good for me. Versus, I just want to win, 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 regardless. Right. Well, I think that the, I think during the primaries, it was pretty obvious. I mean, Bernie Sanders was the one that was catching way more friction from Black Lives Matter. Uh, but at the same time, the one, the person that was favored by the DNC, it was very much behind closed door meetings, or if somebody was disrupting, they were immediately removed. Yeah. And then after, after that, she can literally just say, well, that dude's racist. <laughs> I offer you nothing. I know that you're drinking lead-infested water, tainted water, but that dude's a racist. That's all she had to offer. She couldn't even offer him a $15 an hour minimum wage. She's like, how about twelve fifty? Again, I agree with you, but I don't even know that even if she did do that, sure. that her message would have been well-received because she's not the right candidate to deliver that message, even if it's what that audience wants to hear. No, I agree with that. Messaging failure and the particular foibles of the candidate herself, you know, combined in this really unfortunate way, you know, we ended up with a thing that nobody thought was ever going to happen. You know, it's not over yet, because in another four years, we're going to have to have another election with Trump. 
and this time it's just all Trump all the time. It's gonna be it's gonna be interesting for sure. And midterms before that, right? Well, right, the midterms before that, but you know, even just look into the future. I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be a crazy election. Uh, I don't know who the Democrats are gonna run. Couldn't the couldn't Kanye. the Republicans get one more state legislature by the midterms? If that happens, they could literally rewrite Constitution. Right, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know if they're going to push for something like that, but I guess anything's But possible. they could accidentally get it. Well, I right, mean, but just crazy. because they have the ability to right. pass some sort of constitutional amendment, if they have three-fourths of the states or whatever, doesn't mean that they'll actually unify into it. Right. Um, which is, again, which I come keep coming back to on Trump, is that I don't think he's going to be an effective <laughs> administration and accomplishing a lot. So I'm interested to see what he kind of chooses to focus yeah, his energy well, I, on. Yeah, well, I tend to agree with you, and I also agree that it, you know, this this is more of that sort of uh, binary thinking to think that just because they're all on the same team together that they're going to be able to pull together. Conservatism versus liberalism, that's something that reasonable minds can disagree on, and I think that it's a mistake for us to think that anybody who tends to hold conservative values on economic or social issues or both at the same time even is necessarily a bad person. It's incumbent on people who feel like they have better ideas to make the case. You're not going to convince maybe the state legislator who's got his eye on a Senate position, but you can convince his voters because they're not going to co-sign. He wants to rewrite the Constitution to I don't know, have some sort of make constitutional some kind of uh, registry based on religion. There are plenty of church-going Republican voters who don't think that they want to open the door to a registry that might someday have Southern Baptists registering with the government. You know, that's how you make that case to them. I hope that I hope that there's enough people who can remain reasonable. I, I mean. I really hope if Trump does try to start something like that, that a lot of conservatives will team up with Democrats to provide pushback on something so extreme. I guess it remains to be seen, but... Be the Henry Fonda you want to see in the world. (laughs) We've seen some moves from social media in the aftermath of this election to not necessarily throttle legitimate points of view, legitimate differing points of view, but to disempower basically propaganda, fake news, or the really extreme divisive rhetoric. I think that that might play a role too, because at this point, it's something like 40% of Americans get their news pretty much completely from Facebook, uh, which could be valuable, except Facebook tends to show you only stuff that you agree with. So if Facebook changed its algorithm and got rid of all of the obvious bullshit, like the Pope endorses Trump. That could have a a mitigating impact. It seems like they are aware of that as a problem and that they are looking into it. So I'm I'm optimistic that they can make it a little bit better. But yeah, I think one of the interesting things that, uh, that Chuck, that you actually sent me was that a dude made a Twitter bot to combat racism Yes, and did a bunch of tests on it to basically say, like, if it triggered off of a certain word, it would automatically reply and just say, like, hey, man, I just wanted to let you know, it really, you know, is hurtful when you say sort of things like that. And, like, real people 
um, you know, that really hurts them. A quick shout out, you know, this came from one of our listeners, our Hong Kong listener, actually. <laughs> Ted, big, big ups to you. Thank you for the article. The article was great because it kind of, the uh, researcher was showing, wanted to test several different ways in which um, there would be a reaction to these Twitter bots that are like, hey, man, this really affects people's real lives and their feelings and stuff. And so he split it into four different types of Twitter bots, um, black Twitter bots and white Twitter bots, Twitter bots that have... Um, like 500 or more Yeah, followers, like a bunch of followers. A bunch of followers. Almost no followers. Or no followers. Basically, it was like like groups, white people, or people perceived to be white that were using this kind of language or hate speech. They were more likely to use it less if they received that message from a Twitter bot that um, was also white and had a lot of followers and looked uh, right. to but be actually, some sort of authoritative... Yeah, I believe it also found, though, that if it was a Twitter bot that was of the opposite race, it actually increased. Increased. If it was a Twitter bot of the opposite race and had the least amount of followers, not many followers, it actually increased the most. Right. So, Which you would think, like, it's so weird because to me as a white person, if someone's on Twitter being racist and I say something, it's almost like, why would they care, <laughs> you know? But if someone else who would reach out and say, like, hey, I'm a real person who's really, you know, impacted by that, mm-hmm. um, you'd think that would be the most effective <laughs> method of getting them to understand. But but yet, no. <laughs> no. Man, I don't know you, but you're making me angry right now. So I guess we need more white people with to get famous, to get Twitter famous and then really be able to combat, you know, the all right. So I don't know. I don't know if that'll work face-to-face in real life. I almost feel like in real life it's going to have to come down to someone saying... I mean, I think one of the things that we definitely have to be mindful of as we look into the Trump administration is you're already seeing so many reports of people using this Trump victory to harass minority groups. So I think one of the strongest things that anyone can do, which is to just say, like, look, if you hear someone (laughs) spouting off racist language... Don't be a person that's just like, well, that was weird. I'm not talking to that guy again. Like, actually speak up and say, like, wow, that's a horrible thing that you mm. just said. Mm-hmm. I can't believe you just said that and that you would say that out loud. Uh, I think that will go a long way to helping people. Sometimes they get caught up and they don't realize what their uh, yeah. what their actions actually are actually doing. So why would you feel comfortable saying that? There's there's a great video. It came out around the like the real heyday of Gamergate. Um, talking about Angry Jack. And Angry Jack is not the guy that you need to convince. Who you're trying to convince are the 150 people who are listening to what Angry Jack has to say. So in that kind of a situation, maybe you're not even trying to get the obvious racist to change his or her mind. You're just speaking up on behalf of the other people in the crowd who might also be thinking, like you put it, Brandon, like, oh, that was pretty weird, you know. But to have a voice speaking up can push some of those people back in the the right direction. The thing that the Trump presidency has done is really just kind of lift the taboo from it, really just kind of let it out of the closet. It's almost like an empowerment of saying those kind of things. For a little while there, I thought to myself, maybe it would be better if I didn't have like my picture on my Twitter profile. 
because it can be a little bit crazy on Twitter. I don't know if I'm ready to like feel like I have to fake people out first and have them right. like me on a text level before they can figure out, hey, biracial, you know, it's weird. So I don't know. I obviously went the other way, and we'll see how long that goes. <laughs> yeah, well, and Chuck, I, 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 another thing that's been occurring to me recently, you know, if, if we're going to trumpet better engagement and more conversation and exposure to different ideas as the way that we win this thing, that means a lot of work for relatively privileged classes, but it also means a bunch of work for underprivileged classes, which to me feel it, that's intuitively messed up. They're, they're the ones who are under threat. So to put the, the work on them seems incredibly unfair. And yet I think there probably is value in you being openly a black man on Twitter. It's just, it's fucked up for me to ask you to like, whether the Trump supporter deluge that you get when you're a disliked person on Twitter by that particular crowd. And I think, yeah, for anyone who thinks that like white privilege isn't real, just think like, when was the last time you thought, I wonder if it's okay if people on Twitter know that I'm white. Right. That's just not a thought that any white person has ever had to deal right. with. Yeah, they have absolutely yeah. no idea that, you know, the stress that, you know, that could cause on somebody else. A thing that you just never even think about once. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You think about, you know, what if a job looks at it and, you know, even just having other people know anything about me beyond what's on my resume is really kind of. It's something that, you know, it does cross your mind. And even being in a Midwestern state sometimes, um, being friendly in a way where you think, I'm doing this because I feel like I'm representing or being an ambassador to <laughs> right. people, you know. Right, but, right. and again, yeah, yeah that's something know. that as a white person, I never have to think about, like, if I'm mad, if I, like, am rude to a person... Yeah. Is that just going to make them hate all white people? Right. Re reinforce bad expectations that they have about white people. I better leave this door yeah. open, you know, for this person coming up, even though I'm angry at people, <laughs> right. Right? right? You know, it, it's an interesting way to live. It's definitely different, but, you know, it's what you deal with. Like I said, it blew the people's mind at the Philly cheesesteak shop in Philadelphia. And when they said, oh, where are you from? I said, Omaha, Nebraska. And they're like, it's like those Pace Picani commercials back in the day, like <laughs> New York City. You're a record scratch. You know, I, I'll, I'll ride that level of entertainment out for as <laughs> yeah, long as, as long I as can. you're as long as you're physically safe. You know, <laughs> most of the people in Nebraska. I mean, at the stadium, it was great. I'm sure that it was probably full of 80, 90 percent people that voted for Trump if they voted. Yeah, but, probably. But you know, everyone was. Focused on what really mattered, which was the exploitation of American youth <laughs> to make millions of dollars playing the sport. Something we can all agree on. Oh, man. <laughs> I do love the sport. I do love college sports, even though it's problematic. And, you know, I, I do enjoy myself at the games. So, you know. Yeah, Matt, we'll have to have you back for like an NCAA oh, in-depth uh, discussion. The big one, and I think this is one that's been big in the media also, which is good, particularly with football, um, to a lesser extent like wrestling and a couple of other sports, real physical damage that's being done to men's, by young men's bodies 
um, before they're necessarily of an age or a maturity to be able to make that kind of decision advisedly. You know, I, I do, I, I tend to worry less about concussions in the NFL than I do in high school football. Right, but you're never going to get yeah. to the NFL unless you're, like, playing high school. Unless you're running into <laughs> brick walls for practice, you know, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, so that that does come up, but, yeah, that would be that would be a great um, just overall topic. You know, how do even high schools, not just uh, NCAA, but, you know, high school sports also, you know, what are the big, broad, sweeping issues that are – encouraged or at least allowed by that culture. Yeah, that'd be a great discussion. And I think that there's something that you've probably that you've definitely touched on before on men's lib. Something that I've gotten more into after going to um an LGBT caucus at the National Communication Association in Philadelphia, but um I guess masculinity and the views of masculinity within the African American community and how that's affected, you know, progression of LGBT queer folk within yeah. that community, and maybe the, a different the different angle of um, stress that they have to go through, I guess, in terms of owning owning that that truth for themselves. So yeah, I think that kind of goes back to what we were saying before too about if you have, you know, even if you think you've won the argument, you have to keep making the argument, right? So mm-hmm. just because Democrats think like, oh, well, you know, gay marriage is legal, so we never have to talk about gay issues ever again. Right. It's like, no, you have to keep talking about it. You yeah. have to keep supporting it. You have to keep building that consensus because there's probably a lot of people who, you know, voted for Obama or who are Democrats that don't really feel strongly about that issue. And, you know, it's not yeah. going to continue to energize them unless you keep making that issue matter to them and you keep talking about how important it is. Yeah, that's totally right. And uh, one thing that I read, and I thought it was a really interesting perspective, that we're seeing a rise of white nationalism kind of globally between the Trump election and Brexit. Marie Le Pen and the things that we're seeing going on in Hungary and some of the old Eastern Bloc countries Right about the time where all of the survivors of World War II are dying. For a couple of generations there, it was obvious why white nationalism is not the way that we want to go. And Brendan, I think you're totally right that you have to continue to make the argument, you know, particularly when it's not in your face anymore. Your your average, uh, you know, white economically depressed person living in the, the middle of Wisconsin, like... They don't come up against real racism (laughs) that much. No. You know, it's a very white state. And I know that that sounds dumb. It's almost insulting to a progressive liberal mindset that you have to continue to take people back to school on these issues. And like, why is racism bad? That seems like such a basic thing. And I think that among this group of three people, that's an inbuilt assumption. Racism is bad. But... A, a non-insignificant portion of Trump voters and supporters are, like, young people. People who, who got brought up in a culture where racism was considered bad, but there was no reason to think that that was the case. This goes to something that I've been thinking about as well, which is, as someone who has kids now who are kind of getting a little bit older, you kind of have to start talking about that stuff because you realize that if you don't talk about it, they just don't encounter it at all. Yep. 
they don't well, ever learn what they, racism they is or how to encounter it. But they're encountering the only arguments that are being made are the opposite direction of that. You know, I've been concerned about, you know, my nephew is seven. He loves to watch let's play streamers and things like that. You know, some of these guys want some pretty problematic views. And if there's no countervailing argument for why when he said, like, this is why I don't like to play with black people. If there's nobody making an argument as to why that's a bad thing, then that's the only argument he's hearing. On one side, like, this thing's wrong. On the other side, you've got an argument for why the person telling you that it's wrong is wrong. Wow. Yeah, and I think it, it goes to the thing where it almost makes it so that you have to do that yourself more, right? Is to just say, if you don't understand why racism is wrong yourself, you can't tell someone else why racism is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a, it's a whole process of, of, of introspection and stuff. And, uh, you know, some people, like I said, they just never encounter that type of thing and they never even think about it deeply. They just, they just hear it. They just assume it. They just live it. And it's not an intellectual argument until you make it an intellectual argument by engaging them in discussion, yeah. which a lot of people don't do because they just say, those people are crazy racist. I'm never going to talk to them. Oh, yeah. Nothing to be gained. I always say it. I feel like it's almost something that should just be said on every episode is we've got to try to get Ernie Chambers to get on here. <laughs> right. Maybe we can make it Ernie's guide I mean, to confronting racist arguments right. or something. I mean, why bother? Because we just solved racism right now, you guys. <laughs> oh, yeah, we did. We need to get that out on YouTube or something. Could you put Seriously, that up? though, you yeah. guys have to invite me back if you get Ernie Chambers on, because I've been oh, wanting yeah. to talk to that guy in person for years. It would be, Absolutely. It would be cool. It's definitely uh, a long-term goal we have. <laughs> and by long-term, I mean sometime in 2017. Oh. <laughs> have, have you emailed him? He's... He's kind of a firebrand, you know, like, I, I could see him coming on a, a local podcast with you guys. Oh, absolutely. And I know some people in the LGBT community that he is pretty tight with, so, and if we can make it happen, you're definitely coming back on. I think, well, yeah, I think, yeah, we should totally make this a regular thing, because I think it was really cool. Yeah. I would like to continue to podcast with you guys, for sure. That would be excellent. Yeah, certainly. I'd, I'd love to, and it, it has been just a real pleasure talking with you guys about this stuff and i look forward to being invited back uh where can they find you on twitter there man i am matt the great uh with a w on twitter you can follow me on facebook also just matthew hodges i'm the guy wearing a pea coat and kind of losing his hair uh and you can check out our organization at reddit.com slash r slash men's lib all one word also on Twitter at Men's Lib Reddit. Excellent, excellent. And I'll go ahead and toss my Twitter out Let's there do too. It. You know, you can find me at Shaggy Two Trope. That's T O O T R O P E, and then Shaggy S H A G G Y. Shaggy Two Trope. <laughs> there you go. And I'm Brendan. I'm at Brendan Williams on Twitter. But the Williams is with only one L. There two you L's go. Was taken. <laughs> two L's was taken. Uh, and we so. have one for our podcast too at liquid underscore flannel that I'm going to try to start using more. So we'll be throwing out yeah. some links to the stuff we discuss on there uh, yeah. as well. That'd be great. Put some show notes, etc., for people. And you have been listening to the Liquid Flannel Podcast. So thank you very much for tuning in to our 11th episode. Keep on tuning in. We'll keep putting out great content. And uh, have a wonderful evening. <laughs>